appreciate you uh, taking the time to chat with me, dude. Yeah, and, yeah, and for sure. Just for definitely, just for starters, man. Like, I don't want this to be uh, like a, a journalistic kind of interview. I want this to be as fluid as possible. Like my my intention of of making this podcast is really just to have you know meet cool people and have genuine conversations and and try to you know try to interact and and delve a little bit deeper than the surface level stuff and you know have meaningful conversations awesome. about you know life and and how you choose to live your life and what you care about and that kind of stuff cool sound good cool man awesome yeah i love it well for starters dude uh tell me a little bit about how you got into photography and ultimately why you decided to pursue it as a career so that's uh yeah that's a big question um actually let me have some let me have some coffee yeah and also if you need to go to the bathroom or take a break at any point let me know it's all good we can record yeah. all this this can be this can all be part of the podcast by the way it's <laughs> yeah sweet actually here you're with me for my um i actually think you could learn a lot about somebody from their morning routine especially the vitamins that they take <laughs> and a lot of somebody's personal history is written in the vitamins that they take so here let's go through this multivitamin because i want to be healthy fish oil Amazing. for brain health for focus i have extreme adhd okay <laughs> those down. love it and a big jug of water with uh apple cider vinegar because i have uh ashkenazi jewish digestive system apple cider vinegar helps great man uh, great uh lion's mane mushrooms for again focus adhd ashwagandha with maca root for uh, mood and energy vitamin uh, b2 400 milligrams um, my neurologist recommended this i had a bad motorcycle accident and a brain injury so oh wow that's a whole part of the the story from the past but okay. we'll get into that that's why i said the history is written into it um vitamin d this is my sunshine drug i need sunshine i have a little uh you can see a little uh, happy lamp over here that's yeah that's my apples with peanut butter um recommend that for anybody who lives in a cold and dark climate in the winter it's really good for your mood you wake up in the morning you get some natural uv and uh biotin uh, I think this is for somebody, a pharmacist in Columbia recommended I get this. Columbia, the country, not the university. Um, when I was buying, I guess I was buying vitamin D. He was like, it's good for your, it's good for your bones and your hair. All right. So let me just take this, get my energy up and then we'll get started. Sweet man. I should have brought my vitamins. I, I took them like 20 yeah, minutes Jack, ago. Yeah, Jack, what do you I... take every day? <laughs> What's your routine? I do vitamin, vitamin C. Mm -hmm. Um, I do vitamin D fish oil for like this, the same reasons that you've already given. And then I also take this, uh, I take a probiotic cause I have some gut issues Yeah, and, and then I, uh, I also take this, uh, pill called quercetin. That's like, cool. it helps with inflammation also because of drug issues and apparently helps with, uh, longevity and that kind oh, of nice. stuff. Okay. All right. I'll look yeah. into it. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, great. Um, so yeah, your question, where, where are you based by the way, Jack? Yeah, dude, I'm, I'm in Williamsburg. What about yourself? Oh, I'm in Bushwick. 
Okay. Yeah. So how did I get into photography? Um, yeah. So I guess you got to go way back. My, my grandfather, who was um, a physician, um, there's a photo of him right here. Actually, both my grandparents were physicians. She was the only, this is in their place in Puerto Rico. She was the only Love female it. graduate of her entire medical school class in the 40s. Two immigrants oh, wow. in the 40s um, when women weren't going to college in New York, typically. She mm -hmm. was graduating medical school. He was also a physician, dermatologist, uh, pediatrician. So he was a, um, I guess, a photographer as a hobbyist. They were very, they were humanists. They would, they traveled the world and, um, through a very um, kind of like humanistic lens. It wasn't just about tourists. It was about getting to know the people and the things and the, in, in the places that they would go. And they would always, you know, when they would travel with my mom, when she was younger, you know, she was very privileged. My mom was the youngest out of uh, three kids and she was seven and 10 years younger than her, than her two older siblings. So she basically just got to tag along on all the, these adventures that my grandparents had. Um, nice. And again, these very like firsthand experiences where they were not just focused on being tourists, but really focused on immersing themselves um, within the places that they would go. Um, and um, my grandfather always had a camera with him. He was a he was a photography hobbyist, um, but he took some amazing photos. And I grew up with his photos, you know, going to to their house and seeing his photos um, from all over the world on the wall. Um, and they were they were great. And. My mom's two older siblings were doctors, so they took after that side of their parents. Um, and uh, my mom was a photographer, is a photographer. Um, so she took after the hobbyist part um, from her dad. My grandmother wasn't interested in photography at all as a, as a hobby. She just enjoyed it. Um, and my grandfather, um, he introduced me to photography kind of like as a practice very young. He and my grandmother were actually the first ones to put a camera in my hand. My mom always had a camera in her hand, but she wasn't really showing me how to operate a camera. I just kind of, you know, learned by diffusion with her. But um, my grandfather took me to um, took me to, you know, trips. My grandparents took me on trips and they bought me my first camera, Minolta um, film camera. Um, and uh, I still have it lying around somewhere. I should actually find it. Um, it's probably at my mom's house. But um, I, uh, I, I remember going um, to a Robert Kappa um, exhibit with my grandfather, he was a really famous war photographer. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if, if, if you ask me, you know, who are three people dead or alive, who you who you'd like to have dinner with, I think it would be probably all at the same time, because I think the three of them would get along really well. I think it'd probably be Robert Kappa, um, Anthony Bourdain and Frida Kahlo. Um, I think that'd be a really fun um, trio. Um, well, and me included. So the four of us. Um, so he took me to see this Robert Kappa exhibit. And I kind of just like fell in love with this idea of experiencing the world through the camera from a very young age. Um, and then it kind of just like sat in the back of my head and this this person of robert kappa was kind of like this character he he became like a kind of like a superhero to me when my other superheroes at that age were like you know charles oakley and patrick ewing and anthony mason 
this photographer who is, you know, going behind enemy lines in World War II, is a Jew from Hungary, spoke seven languages, um, had this life of adventure and intrigue and, and making really powerful photos that changed minds. That kind of gave me the bug from the start. Um, and it always kind of lived in the back of my mind. I guess I never really thought of it as uh, a clear vocation. Um, and then I spent the early part of my career, my 20s and 30s, um, working in a variety of industries. I've had a few different careers um, and paths, but all of them, my camera was with me. Um, and I was kind of experiencing um, my work through photography as a separate kind of as a separate kind of path. So like I mentioned, I, I went to, uh, or I had a head injury. I was in medical school um, when I was younger in my early twenties. Um, and I had a bad um, motorcycle accident and hit my head. And after a year of never, of trying to recover and never really being able to fully recover, um, I basically said, I'm not gonna be able to, to make medicine work because my brain just never responded cognitively to the way I needed it to, to be able to continue with medical school afterwards. And admittedly, medical school was really hard for me. It wasn't the path that I should have chosen for myself. For myself, um, mm -hmm. I'm not, I was never a strong science student or a math student, but the behavior of, you know, essentially like whatever like privilege we might have had um, to positively affect the world around us and the world at large, I'd always seen that behavior modeled through medicine. Um, like I said, my grandparents were physicians, both my mom's older siblings are physicians, and they're both married to physicians. Um, my dad is a physician. And now my younger brother's a physician. So mm -hmm. I'd always seen their kind of like innate ability to change lives on a very acute direct level. And I said, you know, I want to positively impact people's lives, this is the most direct route to do it, very vertical route, you're dealing with individual patients. And then when I left medical school, it was kind of the circuitous route, I did a few different things, worked in media, worked for a bunch of nonprofits in the developing world. Um, and um, in Latin America and in India and in the Middle East and Sub Saharan Africa, and I always had my camera with me and I was documenting the work where it was, you know, ethically appropriate to document the work um, through photos. And um, I just, I think it, it, photography was becoming more of a part of my life, I guess, in parallel with how photography was becoming more a part of everybody's lives. Mm -hmm. um, you know, with, with, you know, the advent of social media and digital media, photography just became so much more of a medium for communication than it used to be. I mean, it, it, you know, we can all identify, you know, the biggest global conflicts or the biggest global events from the past 100 years, and you can kind of tell their story with one or two photos. Um, you know, you think of these, you know, as part of like the overall societal psyche, you think of Vietnam, you think of uh, the girls, you know, running away, um, you know, basically running away from a village on fire. Um, you think of World War Two, you think of the, you know, the D-Day photos. Um, you think of uh, JFK's assassination, you, you, you remember the, the photo of his of his son, I think he was saluting or something like that. But now we're just so saturated. So um, 
I think photography's become even more part of it, but it's harder to identify like what is the canonical photo um, for each situation. That's a separate conversation. But I started, um, eventually I kind of like made my way back. I started thinking again about like how, how do I accomplish the goals that I set out to accomplish while I was, you know, that made me decide to go into medicine. How do I essentially accomplish those goals through other means? Um, and I started looking at the organizations that do more horizontal work um, and what the leaders in these organizations, what their you know personal profiles look like. Um, so I went to grad school, University of Miami for um, international relations. And after that, um, I joined the Brookings Institution on a graduate internship. Um, and I'd been working for a medical aid organization that called Global Medical Training that runs um, medical aid missions with um, pre-med and medical and pre-dental and dental students in um, Latin America and India. And then I joined the Brookings Institution as a graduate intern. And um, and um, after six months, they hired me full-time to stay. Um, I think I kind of brought something that was... Um, a little bit different than like the classic academic researcher on like a PhD track. I had a lot more practical experience. So I wasn't an expert at anything that Brookings did. I wasn't an expert researcher. I was an expert, you know, in comms. I was an expert in fundraising, but I had the ability to do all of those things really well. Um, so I just kind of kept getting plugged into different places. Um, and then the pandemic hit um, and we started working from home and um, I was working from home in DC and then concurrently George Floyd had been murdered and um, you know DC was kind of like a, a hotbed of, of protest and of of you know discourse it was also coinciding with the with with the election and there was so much going on with the way Trump was responding to you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and, you know, the, this whole movement. So DC became a real center for it. And my girlfriend, my my now ex-girlfriend and I lived, she, she actually worked for the federal government. She and I lived a mile up from the White House, exactly one mile because it was, you know, on my running route. Um, so there would be these big protests that go down um, 14th Street um, almost at a certain point. It became almost every day. Um, towards the White House. 14th Street is kind of like this historical center that goes through U Street and then goes through a bunch of different neighborhoods, kind of um, part of the the history of like Black DC. It's a, it has a very important role. So a lot of um, a lot of important protests happen around like 14th Street and U Street in DC. And we lived at 14th Street and R Street. So it just goes down. And the White House is at 16th and H basically 16th in Pennsylvania. So that gives you an indication of how close it is. It was to us. So finish work around five fish, six ish every day. And that's when people would be finishing up work and just marching down towards the white house every day. So I would go and either go on a run and bring my small camera or my phone, or just go out. And once I saw or heard people protesting, I'd go out and I'd bring my my camera with me and just kind of document it. I mean, I was involved in the protests as a as a as a protester, but also as a as a photographer. And June first, twenty twenty, I see a protest going down Fourteenth uh, Street. I join it. 
um, or I was actually finishing up a meeting. So I, I was like, all right, they must be going down to the white house. Cause there was a lot. And, um, my meeting finished late. I put on my running shoes and I like ran down to the, um, white house as fast as I could. I remember like tracking my run on Nike and it was like one of the fastest miles that I'd run like all year, if not ever, because I knew there was something happening. So I, I wanted to get down there as quickly as possible. So I went down to the white house. It was a huge protest that day, June 1st. Um, and you could just tell there was some like extra tension in the air. There was a lot of um, National Guardsmen were there. There were all these different kind of like federal um, law enforcement agencies there. Like ATF was there, FBI was there, and they're in their full riot gear and everything. And it was it was generally a peaceful protest. I mean, protesters had generally like taken over kind of that park um, in front of of the White House. That then they put up a big fence in front of it but i was kind of like in as a photographer i was in like protester slash observer mode and i started to notice that something was happening because i noticed all like the big political figures starting to show up like millie and um the other guy with the glasses i can't remember his name um trump fired him soon thereafter or he quit soon thereafter whoever it was um he had so many um defense secretaries and national security advisors that it's hard to keep track um but at a certain point, Trump decided that he wanted to give a, um, a, a speech. Um, so he had basically the National Guard clear out all of these peaceful protesters with tear gas and rubber bullets um, so that he could walk across the street to that church. And he gave that famous speech with the upside down Bible. Um, and... Um, I was in the crowd and I got tear gassed. Um, I still have the canister somewhere. I don't know where it is right now, but like the, the tear gas canister, it's like this big. We, we turned it into a planter. Um, and then, uh, and um, I got a lot of photos that day. Um, and then um, my friend told me, knew, knew that I was there and she had a friend at the ACLU who's started building a case against the Trump administration for essentially brutalizing and firing on peaceful protesters for no reason other than to have, I mean, the reason doesn't matter, but his reason was to do this, you know, press conference in front of this church where he held the Bible upside down and just held up the Bible like this, like he was the second coming of Jesus. And, um, the, I got connected with the ACLU. I shared some of my photos and my video and the ACLU told me they were working with vice news, um, on a story. So I shared some of my work with vice news. Um, they liked my work and then they, they used, um, a lot of my photos in a documentary that they did on, um, the, the protest on, on June 1st, it was called the photo op. That's what the name of the documentary was. Um, check it out. Um, and, um, at that point, and they interviewed me for the, for the documentary also. And at that point I started to, um, to realize that like, you know, if I lean into photography a little bit more, that there's something here and that, you know, I'm accomplishing, you know, the same sort of goals that I wanted to accomplish with, you know, working at the Brookings Institution and working in medicine, which is basically just like positively affecting society in a way that I felt, you know, most, um, most connected to in a way that I could contribute the most, my, my, you know, skill set or my, my experience. So I started 
at that point, kind of like the idea really entered into my head where maybe I could do this um, more seriously. And I started to kind of like take, you know, small steps. I started, you know, learning a little bit more about photography, buying better equipment, um, putting myself strategically in the right places at the right times to be able to, you know, capture the right stories. Um, and a series of life events put me in a position where I was finally like really able to make a concrete decision that I would just kind of leave what I was doing behind and go into photography. And, and that was my girlfriend and I had broken up and we had our apartment together in DC and the lease ended. So all of a sudden I, you know, didn't have to pay rent in a specific city and I was single. So like for myself and, um, I, over the next like two years, I left DC and year and a half, I was living in like 10 or 15 different countries, just working remotely, um, doing some consulting, working for an organization that essentially does like an Aspen ideas, um, Davos style meetings all over the world off the record. And our entire team was remote. So I could do that from anywhere. So I lived in Argentina, Colombia, Costa Rica, Tel Aviv, Italy, um, New York, DC, um, a bunch of other places in between. Um, and at a certain point I was, and I was doing a lot more photography, but I was so spread thin and I was so like, you know, I was, I was, I was all over the place and I couldn't really like make anything of the photography. Um, cause everybody I met with was like, you really need to like plant yourself somewhere and focus on a specific theme. And, um, I decided, you know, like I, I need some, I started to figure out how little I actually know about photography, about the technical side of it, about the the business side of it, um, about the practice of it. So, you know, I said to myself, you know, why don't I try to go and get some actual, you know, meaningful training about this? Because if I want to go for it, I want to go all the way. Um, I don't want to half-ass it. Um, so I looked at a few like different um, intensive photography programs. One of them was with um, Magnum and Speos in, in Paris. And another one was the International Center of Photography in New York City. Um, and I had had a few friends of friends who had done the International Center of Photography program. It's basically like a year long, um, a year long intensive in either documentary photography or creative practices in photography. Creative is a bit more technical, more artistic and documentary is much more based on like long form storytelling, journalism, the type of stuff that I'm more interested in. Um, and, um, I got a, uh, a nice chunk of money to go attend a director's fellowship. And I just said, um, fuck it. I'm going to pull the trigger and do it. I actually remember I, I submitted my application to this, to this program. I do everything last minute, which is a problem, but, um, I submitted my application, um, uh, the night that I got to Argentina, um, I think it was March 1st, um, and the deadline was 12 a.m. or 11.59 p.m. Um, Eastern Standard Time, and Argentina um, was two hours ahead. So it was my first night in Argentina in Buenos Aires, and, and I sat at a bar to kind of like submit it at maybe like eight o'clock, thinking about like, I'd do the last hour or two, finish my edits and submit it, you know, by like 10 o'clock. And I just kept getting more ideas and more things that I wanted to talk about in my personal statement. I literally 
submitted it. The bar had closed, but the Wi-Fi was still on and I didn't even have time to walk home. I submitted my application um, at like 1.59 a.m. and 35 seconds, like with 15 seconds to spare. Um, and um, a few months later, I found out that I got in and I got um, I got a nice um, chunk of funding. And um, I just said, like, all right, fuck it, all signs point back to New York. Um, and uh, I've been in this program since August. Um, it's it's one of the best personal and professional decisions I've I've made for myself. Um, there is so much that I discovered that I did not know about photography, um, about the technical side of it, about the practice of it, um, the history of it, how to just go about it. Um, and, uh, it's really, it's been a, it's been a huge gift to be able to be back in New York where most of my family is, um, and experience, you know, this place that I know so well, kind of anew through the camera, um, and since August, I've also had the opportunity to um, go to a few interesting places and cover really, um, um, really important um, stories, I guess you could say, um, or important events. Um, and um, yeah, that leads us here, January 27th, 28th, whatever date it is today. <laughs> Amazing, man. Yeah, and I, I definitely want to spend some time maybe in the second half of this to discuss the, the trip that you went on recently. Um, we'll spend a bunch of, of time talking about that. Um, so you mentioned Robert Kappa. I'm, I'm curious, and, and I guess before I jump into that, so is, are you, do you consider yourself like a, a photojournalist, a more artistic photographer, or somebody who engages more in like, I guess, more long form kind of documentary stuff? Like what, have you kind of decided a concentration? Do you do everything? What's your, uh, what's your cup of tea yeah so i mean i still like what what i was like talking about before with um with like the the vice news stuff that is much more photojournalism and like a big kind of theme that we talk about at icp is what's the you know difference between photojournalism and documentary photography and photojournalism is much more like the way i think about it this might not be the traditional definition but having done photojournalism and having done documentary photography, photojournalism is more reactive and um, documentary photography, I would say is more proactive. So photojournalism is more, like I said, you know, there's something happening, go shoot it, go cover it. It's more about, you know, like this, this situation is going on. Let's react to it. Quick analysis, share the story, report on it quickly. Documentary photography to me is more, it's definitely more long form and it's about, um, you know, there's this long, deep story that you want to tell. It's much more than surface level. It's not just, uh, it's not reportage. It's more, it's more um, expose, I guess you could say. Um, I wish there were a less pretentious word for that. Um, <laughs> But um, it's more it, it's more deep, deep learning, I guess you could say. I mean, and that to me is much more what I'm interested in because it allows you to immerse yourself in a story. It, it allows you to immerse yourself into relationships with the subjects. It also allows you to take a more personal and um, 
a more personal and I, I guess you could say it, it is at the same time inherently biased, um, but I think it's more overt and you can be a little bit more, um, you, you can, you can, it gives you the space to kind of talk about how you yourself, given your own experience and your own bias relates to what you're seeing and what you're learning about. Whereas reportage is, you know, you're not going to see on like an A1 New York Times cover story. You're not going to see the, the writer talk about how the experience affected them given their specific set of circumstances or what their preconceived notions about a certain situation were. It's more just this happened. These are the facts, you know, move on to the next article. Um, and um, I think that's how you would differentiate between documentary and photojournalism. So I've definitely done more photojournalistic work, but I am much more interested in the documentary um, side of photography, telling, you know, deeper, more long form stories that really change minds, not just reporting, which is extremely important, but I'm more interested in, in the long form uh, storytelling. Yeah. Um, I mean, and I studied anthropology undergrad. Um, so I, I, I kind of like look at my work as, sorry. Um, I look at my work through like a very, um, well, people are starting when they see, they see more of my work, they, they recognize as kind of like humanistic, um, anthropological approach where it's trying to have like a deep understanding and empathy. Um, so I'm most interested in people. And I think kind of like my experience and course of study actually, though very circuitous, and I wish I had decided to get into photography earlier, it informs my work um, in a way that I feel really lucky to have had um, all of these sets of experiences um, to be able to kind of like understand better and, and approach people through a lens of of understanding and, and empathy and, and kind of like a, this deep, um, you know, sociocultural toolkit that I have developed from working all over the world from a lot of different populations and, you know, having studied anthropology and international relations. So I think that affects my, my photographic work in a unique way. What, what has photography taught you about people and has it taught you anything like fundamentally new? Yeah, I mean, I've I've learned, I guess I, I could say I've been surprised by how useful photography can be as a bridge and how useful it can be as a form of, of empathy. You know, the camera is agnostic um, and the camera can be, you know, it can be used for, um, it can be used um, for, you know, for, for negative purposes as well, but um you can really use it as a means for, for good. Um, and I think, you know, people, uh, people respond to you differently when you are making photos as a photographer than just as a person. Um, if they genuinely feel like they're being seen, and if they're allowed to kind of like share their true selves through a lens, um, then I think it it inherently kind of like breaks down this exterior that people have. Um, and it allows you to kind of like start a conversation. So for me, 
um, I'm most interested in people and learning about people. And the camera is a way to kind of like break down that barrier and allow people to feel genuinely seen and allow them to feel like they can be their authentic and more raw selves. Um, so I, I think not just the act of photography, but kind of like the camera itself and the relationship between, you know, a subject and having their photo taken or a subject and a photographer gives me access that I hadn't had just in trying to have conversations with people. Um, yeah. So the camera as as kind of like a conversation starter um, and then, you know, vis-a-vis -vis allowing that to be like a bridge and a way to create empathy um, has been a real kind of like learning experience. And, and because of that, I have my camera with me at all times, 100% of the time. Um, and something that I learned or not I learned, but something that um, we talked about like pretty early on in my time at ICP, I can't remember which photographer said this. I can probably find it out, but basically said that Nobody gets into photography or especially not, excuse me, especially not documentary photography because they love photography itself because they love the technical aspects of photography itself. They get into photography because they're passionate about something else and they express that passion through photography. Um, and that really resonated me, with me because I love photographing and I love seeing photographs. But at the same time, just for photography's sake, to me, it's just another art form. But you, being able to use photography to learn about people, to learn about the world, to create, you know, these bridges of empathy and understanding, that's what I love about it. So I, you, I'm, I'm passionate and interested in, in people and in culture and in conflict res resolution and, and building bridges and food and music and, and personal identities and culture. And I use the camera to experience and share all of this. And I use photography to essentially pursue and share the things that I'm most passionate about. And I think everybody does that to, to a certain extent. Every photographer does that to a certain extent. They figure out what they're most passionate about. And at a certain point they say to, to you know, kind of go after and share this passion with the world. Yeah. You mentioned that you've traveled quite a bit, and I mean, a big part of your like your interest and your passion is is learning about people across different cultures. Yeah. Have there been any um, Have there been any trips that have uh, fundamentally changed the way that you you know saw the world after after experiencing these these trips? Yeah, I mean, I would say um, I studied abroad in college in. Um, I did a global health, it's called health culture and community. Um, and it was through um, the international honors program school for international training. And I studied abroad in um, Tanzania and Vietnam. Um, it was kind of like a cross cultural comparison between different um, health systems. And most of my friends were going, you know, I went to Boston University undergrad and BU has a big, um, you know, big, broad series of um, study abroad programs in cities like, you know, uh, Rome and Paris and London. And um, I wanted to, you know, do something a bit different and really learn um, and experience something different. Because to be honest with you, I didn't really feel like I was getting that in most of my classes until I started taking anthropology and global health classes. Um, 
and um, it was made up of students from all over the country, really all over the world. Um, and we did homestays um, where, wherever we were. And so I had a homestay in Tanzania and, and a homestay in Vietnam. And in between, we spent a week, um, about eight of us spent a week in Ethiopia with one of my friends who was going to college in the States, um, but uh, is from Addis Ababa and is back there right now, or he's been back there since he graduated college. He's building a hospital with his mom. Um, and we spent some time in Ethiopia too. And and Vietnam and Tanzania living with families. And it was just such a important educational, personal, um, cultural experience um, living within these cultures. You know, I had, you know, host brothers and host sisters who were my age. So really getting to see how they, how they live their lives, being included with their friends, having dinner with them every night um, and, you know, allowing myself to be immersed fully in the culture and, and in their, in their families because in, in their way of life, because there was really no other choice. It just basically like further reinforced my belief that people are inherently similar, that, you know, the values are generally the same across cultures that, you know, people value security and family and, and, um, and, and education and happiness, you know, the ideas of happiness, are, are different and based on different material things in different places, but it kind of solidified my belief that like in, in what really matters um, and that you can be, you know, happy with any, any level of material um, goods or items, as long as like the real richness in life comes from family and sharing experiences and, and, and food and art and, and learning, not from, you know, the, the more material things that we kind of define as, you know, success and, and happiness in the States. Um, and it kind of like reframed the way I think about like, what's important to me. Um, because, you know, I saw just, you know, happiness and sustainability modeled and you know, in, in such different ways versus like how I grew up in New York and New Jersey, which like the definitions of success and happiness are much more, you know, rigid and, and, and capitalistic, I guess you could say. Um, and um, yeah, that, that kind of, I guess, solidified the belief that I could, um, I could make my career work no matter what it's in. And um, I, I don't need to pursue a career that is going to give me the same sort of, I guess you could say like uh, creature comforts that, you know, I, you know, people tend to tend to go after or that I even grew up with. So um, it allowed me kind of like the space to be, um, you know, to pursue the things that I felt were, were more important to me um, on a base level, I guess you could say. Very cool. You mentioned Robert Kappa as being like uh, one of your, your biggest inspirations early on. I'm curious, wh what do you think makes, wh what makes Robert Kappa such a, a well-regarded, you know, documentary photographer? And I'm also curious, like, what are your, your favorite photos of his and, and why? Yeah, so I think it's like, I don't think people would say this, but I think it's really his, like, he had this kind of like, um, this, this boldness, everybody would define it differently. This boldness, this bravery, this brashness, this 
carelessness, this maybe even stupidity, um, where he was, he, he, he basically like lived his life without much of a plan. Um, he was a very, um, he was extremely gregarious. Um, I think he was so successful, not because he was such a brilliant photographer, but because of his ability to connect with, with people. Um, people loved him. And I think that was way more important to him having the impact that he had as a photographer than his photographs themselves. And actually probably his best photographs were, were actually ruined. Most of his photographs from D-Day, um, where he literally jumped off one of the U-boats um, into the water with one of the first waves of American soldiers. Um, he jumped into the water with them and he sent his um, negatives back to uh, his, uh, or his, his film back to Life Magazine and some uh, staff member um, fucked up the negatives or fucked up the film and um, most of his, his film from, from D-Day was, was destroyed. And his, his photos from D-Day, which still ended up being some of the most photos from D-Day were probably his worst photos from that day. They're very blurry. Um, but the blurriness works because it kind of just like speaks to the overall psyche of that day and that whole situation. Um, but he, um, he was a real romantic. He was a Renaissance man. He spoke seven or eight different languages. Um, there's only one known recording that I could find of him actually speaking. And he has this extremely unique voice and accent. Um, and people who knew him actually say he spoke Japanese, um, mm. because he would just basically like code switch and switch languages all the time to confuse people and to, to kind of like navigate through the world. His real name was Andre Fleischmann, I believe. So he was also like a Jewish person behind enemy lines during World War II from Budapest. Um, and his brother actually started the International Center of Photography, where I'm studying now, Cornell Kappa, um, who was a, photographer, a brilliant photographer himself. Um, and he dated um, actresses, like Hollywood actresses and models, and was friends with Ernest Hemingway. And he was, he was also very idealistic about, um, about his work, um, which I think is what made him such a, a strong photographer is that if, if he thought there was a story worth covering, he would just essentially like decide for himself to go do it. Um, so he covered, you know, some of the most important stories of Spanish civil war, um, world war two, and he would basically parachute in behind enemy lines in, in Italy and would be in these very difficult places. And, um, he also elevated other photographers, Gerda Taro and, um, he, uh, he didn't really like take no for an answer. He kind of just did it his own way. Um, and asked for, didn't ask for permission. He asked for forgiveness and at basically any time where he took the risk and, and said like, I'm going to bet on myself and, and, um, figure it out. His photos, you know, ended up being, you know, impactful and brilliant, um, brilliant photos. And I really think he, he loved and enjoyed his life and it was an adventure for him. He wrote a book about it, um, which is one of the most interesting and fun books I've ever read. Um, it's called slightly out of focus, um, which I believe, I think he probably thought would end up being a Hollywood movie played by, you know, uh, 
famous uh, Hollywood star because he kind of writes it like it's an adventure novel, but it's historical fiction, nonfiction about his time photographing World War II. Um, highly recommend it. Um, but to me, it's just like his his bravery and his and his dedication to telling the story at great harm and great risk to himself. And he's also just a fascinating, fascinating character who did things his own way and never really took no for an answer. Does he have, aside from maybe the, uh, the D-Day photos that you mentioned, are there any photos that he has produced or honestly, any, any other ph photographer has produced that you think like, you know, perfectly encapsulates like the ideal of what like documentary photography, you know, is maybe on like a more humanistic level? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so actually Kappa's most famous photograph is famous because it's probably like the most oft debated photo about whether or not it's actually real or stage. It's the photo, mm. it's called the falling soldier. It's, it's a photo of a soldier essentially falling back purportedly right after um, he got shot. Um, and nobody really knows, um, but there's, there's been a debate since the photo was taken about whether or not it was staged um, or a real photo. Just even if you search Robert Kappa photos, that's probably the first photo that would come up. Um, I don't really think there's one particular photo as, as like documentaries, but I think it's more, um, it's more about like the photographer's whole body of work themselves, because like one photo can't really stand along. Like I, I was, I can't even remember who I was listening to the other day. Maybe it was Fred Richin, who's a mentor of mine. Um, I think it, it might've been him. He was talking about, you know, one photo is like, you know, a shutter speed is like, let's say one one thousandth or one one hundredth of a second, depending on the light. So that's all you're really seeing of a specific situation. So it would take a hundred to a thousand photos to tell the story of just one second of time. So we also need to be very careful about allowing photos to really like stand as a story on their own. They need to be more deeply informed with, with context. I think we lose that a lot. Um, and, and context is ex extremely important, um, which is why I tend to like gravitate more towards documentary photography, because it gives you the space to kind of like frame things on a more deeper holistic level. Um, but there are certain, I guess, photographers that you could say, even who are documentary photographers who really, or photojournalists who really do a good job of telling the human side of the story. Um, I love, um, um, Lindsay Adario's work. She wrote an amazing book called, um, it's what I do. She's an incredibly brave photographer. Um, and she captures really human stories, even just in her photojournalism work. There's a photographer based in Brooklyn named Natalie Kesar, who I really admire. Um, she's worked a lot in Ukraine. And even when she does stories, you know, photo stories that are in New York, they're very, um, deeply um, humanistic and um, uh, very deeply um, uh, impactful and, and, and tell a real, um, I guess you could say human and, and empathetic, um, empathetic story. Um, and I could go on and on for, I mean, um, Salgado, I love his work. Um, 
there's a lot of photographers now who are working in Israel and Palestine whose work I really admire. Um, uh, Oren Ziv, um, even uh, Motaz Aziza, um, just for you know putting his life on the line um, and, and exposing what's happening. Um, um, this photographer named Abishag, I can't remember her last name. She has two hyphenated last names, but her, her work's been really fantastic. Um, and I, I don't think you can, I think work that you can, that you can't use as propaganda um, when it comes to news is, is really powerful. Um, and I think those photographers do a good job of that. Amazing. Yeah, it's, it's funny you brought up Robert Kappa. I, when designing my website for this podcast, I, I for the main page, I use this photo of, it's a photo of soldiers storming the beach in Normandy and it's like blurry and it's gray and it like shows you, I mean, it, it depicts like the chaos of that environment. Like there's a darkness, there's a chaos, there's, it takes you kind of to this, to this other world where you, you know, I don't know what it was like there, but you at least feel something, you feel something different than, than maybe you would, when you see soldiers on, you know, the TV or something like that. Um, yeah, big, big Robert Kappa, Kappa fan. Also, um, I like Tim Hetherington a lot. I, yeah, Tim Hetherington's amazing. He's amazing. Yeah, I went to the Bronx Documentary Center um, like two months ago, and they had one of his books on the Liberian Civil War. I forget the name of it, but it kind of displayed. And man, he he has a photo. Uh, he has a photo where there's there's this uh, kind of like rebel soldier kind of embracing, like leaning over what appears to be his girlfriend, and there's like. Uh, there's like a look in her eyes. Like it's the last time she's ever going to see him again. He, he kind of knows it as well. And like that, those kind of photos take you, they take you somewhere else. They, they, sure. they transport you to something. It's like, it's, it's just, you understand what, what, despite the culture, the, the conflict, whatever, it's like, everybody can kind of understand what's happening right here. It's so human. It's so like fundamental. Yeah. That's cool, exactly. man. Awesome. I'm, I'm also curious, um, you know, what, what is your process like? Like when you, when you're thinking about, um, kind of more long-term projects, um, you know, I know you're attracted to kind of more humanistic stuff, but like, how do you engage in that? Do you kind of plan stuff out and and try certain ideas out? Or do you kind of just put yourself in different scenarios and kind of go with the flow and and let it take you where it, where it goes? Yeah, definitely the latter. Um, and I think probably the, the deeper I get into this world of documentary photography, that actually might shift to the, to the former. Um, I haven't worked with many editors. So the work that I've done is self-directed, self-guided typically, and then it ends up wherever it ends up afterwards. Um, I've never been a staff photographer for anybody. So I've never had an editor, um, I've never worked with a writer that said, you know, we need you to cover this specific thing. It's always been, you know, I'm going to put myself in this situation, cover what I think the story is. The story usually ends up being something else. Um, Things kind of materialize. And then that work, you know, shows up somewhere. It makes things more difficult because you never really know what's, what's happening going in. And it makes it more interesting at the same time, because it allows you this flexibility to discover, um, while you're there. And when I was in, um, you know, Israel this past month, that's, that's exactly what happened. Um, went in with a very open mind, 
um, basically just said, you know, as a photographer, I want to, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to see. I want to cover a very broad story and hear as many, as many people's experiences as possible from every different, you know, walk of life demographic and cover it that way and allowing myself to be open um, and be democratic about that process and about the story, I think opened a lot of doors for me. And I think in general, that's, that's really my approach is that like really be being open and acknowledging my bias, but, but leaving that out so that, you know, the stories can essentially come to me. Um, mm. It's really try not to force any work. If you feel like you have to like force a story, then it's not really a story. Um, I think that's a problem that a lot of like journalism these days ends up with it's that you know they go into it wanting to tell a specific story so there's this like confirmation bias that's inherent in a lot of the work um and you know like my my work like i just approach it with like i want to like challenge regular ideas um um and you know news and media is extremely polarized and extremely polarizing and to me, like, I, I will say, like, that's, that's my agenda. Like, I think every photographer is a human being and has an agenda and has an angle. Like, for me, my, my, like, actual agenda is to, is to share authentic stories to prove that cultures and groups of people are not monolithic. Um, and to kind of like break down these silos of polarization that we that we live in now. And, um, you know, what I've experienced in the past, especially with this, this current conflict and what I've experienced, you know, being in the middle of politics and, and media um, in the States in the past, you know, 10 or so years, is people tend to just engage with ideas and news outlets and people who only reinforce the ideas that they already have established. And my agenda as a photographer is to allow people to challenge, to have those ideas be challenged in a way that they might not necessarily realize, because if they realize that their ideas are going to be challenged from the start, they just won't engage. So I try to tell stories that are more agnostic and democratic, where people don't feel like they're, um, they're being, you know, any narrative is being pushed on them, um, where they're feeling like, you know, they're, they're not, they're not feeling like, um, they're, they're having they're being told anything where they're allowed to kind of like discover it by themselves and they learn something new and they can maybe create like new pathways of of empathy with each other and that was kind of my goal for this you know israel palestine um body of work that i just that i did just now awesome man so before we get into that i want to definitely have a bunch of questions about that i'm gonna use the restroom take like three minutes and then we'll, yeah, okay. we'll get back into take it appreciate it man yeah give me a sec we are back. Let's make sure the mic is good. Let's see. Yeah. Awesome. Cool, man. So tell me a little bit about, you know, you spent several weeks, I believe, in Poland and in Israel, Palestine. Tell me tell me about your trip and maybe start off, like, what was the intention of, of this trip and kind of walk me through, you know, what you, uh, what you experienced in each of these locations? Sure. So... I actually started out in, um, I went to Poland for about a week beforehand to basically my, you know, my, my 
it started with Poland. So my, I have my dad's parents um, are Holocaust survivors from, can you hear me? Okay. By the way, I can hear you. Great. Can you hear me? Yeah. Um, cool. There's not too much background noise for you. No. Okay. Totally um, so my dad's parents are uh, Holocaust survivors from Poland and we grew up listening to my grandfather's stories. Um, my grandmother didn't talk about it much. My grandfather passed away a few years ago. Um, and my grandmother is my dad's mom is my last, um, living, uh, grand, grandparent. And, you know, basically I'm very conscious that the living memory of this very important, um, time in history is going to disappear within the next few years. And it's incredibly relevant to today. Um, I think, um, that time in history. Um, and I think we are slowly or in my community feel slowly, but I feel like the rest of the world very rapidly, uh, the dangers of the type of rhetoric that we see in the world and the type of politics that we're seeing in the world today and how quickly we can slip into um, a situation like that again. Um, and um, so I wanted to go there and just kind of like experience um, my grandparents, you know, my grandfather's footsteps before world, world war two. So um, I went there without much of a plan other than knowing the the village that my grandfather grew up in um i had memoirs and i had old photos um and i'm getting polish citizenship now so i have all of these old documents um that i had uncovered with the help of a you know polish um law firm search firm um so i went to my grandfather's village and all that's left of the jewish community which was like 60 percent of the town um like 6400 jews something like that in 1939 now with population is zero. Um, all that's left is a small cemetery that I had to hop over a fence to get to. And it's in between an apartment building and a highway and a factory. Um, and, um, and I went to Auschwitz where my uncle, uncle Heshi's family was, um, and just to kind of like experience it and share this work. And I'm still, to be honest with you, not sure exactly how I'm going to be sharing it or what the exact story is or how I want to like frame it. If it's a story for me or if it's a story for, you know, my, my family, or if it's a story for my culture, if it's a story for society at large, I don't really know. So after Poland, um, I went to, um, Israel and I wanted to go on October 8th. Um, but my advisor, um, uh, Karen Marshall, wonderful photographer and, and mentor, um, basically said, don't go to, don't go to, you know, Israel right away. There's photographers there who are covering the conflict and there's going to be enough, you know, it, based on the response in New York to, to share. And I think your voice is more important, your photographic voice, um, your approach to photography and, and documentary photography is more important to have in New York right now. Um, so I, I really took that to heart and I, I photographed, I mean, I didn't sleep because it's a very personal issue for me. Um, but I photographed, um, every, you know, major 
pro-Palestine protest, pro-Israel protest while I was in New York. Um, and it was just, a, it was a really hard and frustrating experience because I feel like there's a lot of um, misinformation on both sides about, you know, what's actually happening or the resolutions for what people are calling for. And I fully appreciate anybody's, you know, reason to be pro-Palestine or pro-Israel. To me, it's, I think, to be pro-Israeli, you have to be pro-Palestinian people. And to be pro-Palestinian people, you have to be pro-Israeli people too. There's two groups of people who live side by side. History as to how we got here aside, these two groups of people aren't going anywhere. And in order for each group to feel, you know, secure and safe, their neighbors also need to feel secure and safe. And if they don't, then, you know, the fangs are going to come out from from either side and i think that's what we're seeing now is that when you threaten somebody's safety they go on the attack threaten somebody's well-being threaten somebody's ability to live with equality or dignity they're going to go on the attack and people are going to suffer so that's what's happening so it was always kind of like after october 7th it was i was just watching the situation very closely and it's a situation you know very um you know close to to, to, to my heart. I've lived in Israel. I have Israeli friends. I have, you know, um, my best, my two best friends live in Israel in Tel Aviv. Um, and I have a lot of Palestinian friends and I have a lot of Muslim friends and I have a lot of Arab friends and Jewish friends from all over the world. And it's for us, it's a very, um, it's a very uh, palpable um, part of our psyche on any given day. And by us, I mean all of the people I just mentioned, but especially since this latest war started, it's it's extremely personal, um, and it's a story. Everybody has a a very personal story as it relates to this. So I wanted to go to Israel and essentially um, combat those issues that I said earlier that have been made really acute in this conflict, specifically the polarization, the misinformation, the idea that communities are just monolithic. Um, so I, I wanted to go there and basically tell as broadcast a wide of a net as possible in terms of who I interviewed, who I spoke to and who I photographed. Um, and I, that, that was my sole idea with, with going there. I didn't know what type of access I would have. I'd reached out to a lot of organizations and a lot of, you know, individuals before I had gone, um, to just get information and see where I might be able to photograph. But until I got there, um, I, I didn't really know what kind of access I was going to get or who I was going to speak to. And I was only planning on spending seven or eight days there. I was flying in on the 24th and, uh, was coming back on January 1st or 2nd. I ended up staying until January 15th. Um, because I just kept finding more stories worth telling, more people um, whose experience I needed to hear, um, who I thought would be helpful in creating these like bridges of understanding and empathy for anybody involved in this in this conflict. And I wanted to to make it as democratic as possible so that nobody feels like it's against them. That even if it's somebody that comes from the opposite side of the, you know, political or religious spectrum from them, that they see them as a human being with a real set of experiences that are worthy of the beliefs that they have and that they don't have 
these ideas and beliefs out of hate. They have them out of a specific set of experiences. So that ended up taking me from, you know, the kibbutzim, the villages that were attacked by Hamas on October 7th, you know, completely destroyed on, on the border with Gaza to, you know, the area where their, where, where their survivors are staying to, um, speaking with, you know, Israelis who, um, who had had their friends and family, you know, murdered in front of their eyes and kidnapped, um, and are some of whom are still in Gaza to, um, Palestinian and Israeli peace activists who are working together, um, who have been working together for years on creating, um, on creating resolutions to, um, the Druze community who is, um, you know, a, a community of very kind of like secretive, um, incredibly welcoming, um, incredibly patriotic, um, community. Druze is kind of like an offshoot of Islam. Their, their patron or their, their, um, prophet is Jethro, Moses's father-in-law. Um, and they're kind of like an offshoot of Islam. They speak Arabic at home. Um, so they're also kind of like caught in between, um, a few worlds. There's large, large populations in, in Syria, Lebanon, even in Canada, but they're incredibly patriotic as, as, a as one of their virtues, as one of their core beliefs to whatever, um, country they are in. Um, so, um, I spent, um, a lot of time with, in the Druze communities also, um, I spoke with, um, religious and secular Jews, right-wing, left-wing, um, Palestinian activists, everyday Palestinians, um, uh, Ethiopian Israelis, um, Mizrahi Israelis, Ashkenazi Israelis, um, young Palestinians, old Palestinians, um, uh, soldiers, civilians, um, young, old, um, Christian, Arab, Jewish, Muslim, Israeli, Palestinian, Latino, Russian, Ethiopian, refugee, um, anybody who has an experience, um, worth sharing and that's anybody's experience. Um, which is why I stayed until the very last minute that I could stay there. Um, and anytime I met with somebody and photographed with somebody, it was, you know, we would love to introduce you to this person. Um, and, um, my whole idea behind this was if it ended up just appearing on the surface to be a story from one perspective, then it's only going to have an audience it's only going to have one audience and it's not going to accomplish what I wanted to accomplish with this, which is helping people or allowing people to kind of empathize with people who they think they just inherently are going to disagree with. Um, so I, I made it so that it would be impossible to do that. And why I essentially didn't like, I, I wanted to just do this as self-directed so that I didn't have anybody telling me, you know, this is the story or these are the people we want you to speak to. Um, so um, my goal is, is to, with this is to create a body of work and I'm still working on how to, you know, frame this. I need to be very careful about it um, so that it doesn't, you know, appear to be made for a specific audience or have a specific, you know, agenda other than creating empathy and understanding. Um, 
but I wanted to make it so that it has a story that anybody could identify with. But when you feel like you can identify with something, then it kind of like opens you up to see the humanity in somebody who you also might feel you disagree with. Whereas if it were just, you know, a story by a, you know, specific author or in a specific publication or with a specific title or about a certain community, everybody who thinks in this day and age, the phenomenon is everybody who, who thinks they'd likely not appreciate or not agree with what that article or what that documentary has to say, they just won't read it. They just won't look at it. They just won't open it up because people don't want to be challenged. I think it's impossible with this body of work. My goal is to make it impossible for somebody to not see a different perspective because they're going to recognize perspectives that they can connect with, but they're also in that process going to see perspectives that they might've not engaged with before. So that was my goal um, with this body of work, essentially open people up to, um, to different perspectives and different, different experiences. And I think, unfortunately, people just automatically don't want to be challenged um, because it inconveniences their, their, their narrative that they're putting out into the world and people don't want to be challenged and, and people are seeing this specific conflict as very black and white. I'd love to, if possible, I mean, I know you're still working on it. You probably took a million photos when you were there and you've only been back for yeah. two weeks, but I'd like to, if possible, like show some of the pictures that you're talking about that challenge ideas and that um, kind of encapsulate, um, you know, what you're talking about on, on this podcast. I'm also curious if you think, you know, having having taken a bunch of photos and are there any photos in particular that you took that you think kind of are able to achieve this that are that are that are able to bring people in that wouldn't otherwise be engaged in these issues and and why do you think these images are um particularly effective yeah so like getting back to the point about context the images themselves no they're just images of people but an image with a story yes um and I think, like I said before, it's it's impossible for just one image to stand alone for this. That you need to see. I would I would need to see like every photo would have to have, first of all, like the context um, and the you know story behind it, the individual's story that they shared with me, um, but also a not necessarily juxtaposing, but uh, a different set of experiences from somebody else, you know, as like a diptych or a triptych, um, or you have two stories or three stories um, next to each other, because that's the whole point of, of this piece. So, um, you know, I'd want to put, you know, the, the Palestinian activists in the West Bank, you know, portrait and story and, and the photos that are most, I've taken all these photos and photos of, of destruction and, and violence and trauma. But I actually think the more I, I look at these photos and the more I think about this story, it's more just about like people. And I want to show the people because their experiences are more valuable and important than just like a, a destroyed home. It's the person whose home this was whether that's, you know, a, a Palestinian's home in, in Hebron in the West Bank or an Israeli's home 
that was destroyed, you know, by Hamas on October 7th in Kibbutz Be'eri or Kfar Aza. So I'd want to, you know, share those stories in direct relation um, to each other. Um, and I think that's what makes this story um, a powerful one, that people have experiences, experienced these same things, but are just not communicating um, with each other. And this whole experience just reinforced my belief that people want the exact same thing, essentially, which is peace, security, equality. Everybody has different ideas about how to get there. And that's what the real conflict is about. But I think if people started to like really fundamentally believe that, you know, realistically, these two groups of people aren't going anywhere and we both want the same thing. Let's figure out how to get to that destination. If we framed it like that, I think the outcome um, would be different and we wouldn't necessarily be seeing this widespread destruction, violence um, that we're seeing, you know, in, in, in Gaza and, you know, what we saw in Israel um, right now. So yeah. yeah, that's my goal. You, so you, you said that you spend a lot of time just meeting, uh, meeting with lots of different groups, um, that are a part of, um, you know, it's a part of the conflict in the region, you know, Israel and the, the Levant is a very diverse area. I'm, I'm curious if there were any, I'm sure you had a lot of impactful, uh, you know, encounters, every encounter is meaningful, but were there any that, you know, in particular challenged the ideas that you had going into this and um, you know, if, if possible, like I'd love for you to kind of share some of the experiences that you had that, that maybe made a, made a big impression on you or think are, are worth, you know, sharing. Yeah. So like the experiences that I really struggled with, and it was hard again, because all of this stuff is very personal for me. And when I'm in the moment, I'm used to being in, you know, difficult and, and frantic even dangerous situations as a photographer. And it's kind of like fight or flight and your adrenaline kicks in. It's like, if you played sports, it's like, you know, that in the middle of a soccer match or in the middle of a basketball game, you're not thinking about your next move. You're just reacting and you're going and that's kind of, and then after the game, you kind of like sit and you do like a post game, you know, recap and, and you you're replaying all the things you could have done differently. And, and you're thinking about it and, and you're going through it. And that's kind of the way it was in all of these situations in, um, you know, in Israel and Palestine when I was there this past time is that afterwards, these experiences were so heavy, but so fast and so, so experiential that in the moment, I didn't have time to think about how it was affecting me. I was just, you know, reacting and asking questions and recording and photographing. But afterwards, it was very, very heavy. And it really sat on me. And it's still an experience that's going to be unfolding for a very long time with me. Um, but there were a lot of things that that I saw that could have made me really angry. Um, and I had to be very conscious of not allowing my anger to take over and not allowing my, my anger to, to change the way that I see people and see the conflict and um, inform the way I approach this work. And it was, it was challenging because 
seeing people commit max mass acts of violence against other people makes me angry. And whether that's, you know, no matter, no matter what group that is and the justification of violence, it makes me, it makes me angry. And I had a lot of conversations where I was talking about, talking about, about, about this with somebody yesterday. I like try to practice radical empathy, like through my work and through in, in life in general. And what I experienced when I was in Israel and Palestine right now is that so many people are really struggling to empathize with what the other side is going through because they have been victimized in such an acute way themselves and they are still going through it. You know, everybody who wakes up in Israel or, or the God in Gaza or the West bank right now, there is an acute cycle of trauma that they're in and they have PTSD, but they wake up in the morning and it starts fresh again. And there is such a small amount of space for empathy for others right now. And at first, it was really bothering me then all these conversations I would go to, I would find like a lack of empathy. And it wasn't because of hatred. It was because of so much energy and so much concern was everybody's own families and own communities, acute suffering that there just wasn't like the bandwidth or there wasn't mm -hmm. the space or the capacity to empathize not out of cruelty, but, but out of, out of an inability to. Um, and I realized that I had to empathize. <clears throat> I had to even empathize with everybody's, not everybody, but most people's inability to find empathy in this situation because the suffering is so massive and so acute for everybody. Um, and it, it, it became, it, it was hard. I've never experienced something like that before that it's just, I, I experienced myself needing to understand that people aren't able to understand or empathize with people who aren't able to empathize at this moment in time. Um, and that was, that was, you know, like challenging for me because I don't want to be a mouthpiece for people who are just, um, who, who cannot, um, you know, uh, at a certain point, see the humanity in somebody else. But that's, that's the reality of the situation. I realized that, like, I'm trying to do one thing, but at, at, at the, at the basis of it, I'm trying to, to show the, the, the truth. And I'm trying to, to share um, real emotions and, and the real story. And somebody's lack of empathy, while like hard to, to to come to terms with it's it's also legitimate um so that was a that that was a challenge um for me as well and to kind of like maintain my own um understanding for all of these people who are really who are really suffering um and are really in crisis and who really feel like their homes are on fire and asking them to empathize with the people who set their homes on fire right now might be a little, you know, insensitive on, on my part, um, whether that's, you know, an Israeli or a Palestinian. Um, so that was challenging um, and it remains challenging. 
And I think it kind of like reframed the way I think about like who the audience might be from this work it, for this work. It might be it might be too raw for for Israelis or Palestinians to really take this in right now because they're in such a deep wave of crisis. But for the American public, who I think is largely extremely biased, no matter what side they're on and are not allowing their views to be challenged, um, that I think is who this this like body of work is really is really for people who have just kind of like accepted and adopted a certain way of thinking about this conflict without trying to empathize with well, with 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 how, you know, people on quote unquote, the other side are feeling or what they're going through their experiences, um, because either they don't really have a deep understanding of the history of the conflict or the current dynamics of the conflict or the culture um, or the experiences, um, but they're so vocal and loud about um, their beliefs in the situation that I think it's making things much worse for the people who are actually living it. So I want to create understanding mm -hmm. for the people who are you know, surrounding the conflict because it, it seems like everybody has an opinion on it. And yeah. I think yeah. a lot of people's opinions are extremely biased um, towards, towards either side. Um, and it's doing a lot of, it, it's making things a lot harder to reconcile for the people who are actually living this conflict day to day. Yeah. Yeah. On the more human side, I'm curious, like, you know, what does that trauma really look like? You know, people are going through it in Israel and in Palestine. Like, what did you, you know, what did you see? What are these people experiencing? How did they interact with you? And like, maybe you can you can tell, you can share and try to articulate kind of the emotional side of, you know, what people are dealing with there. Yeah, it's, it goes beyond emotion, I think. It, it goes, it goes beyond emotion. I mean, it's, it, there's Gaza and Israel might as well be 5,000 miles apart. I don't really think people in Israel fully comprehend what life is like in Gaza or what's happening in Gaza. Um, and I don't think people in Gaza understand, you know, what it's like for the, you know, the way Israelis feel um, about their own security. Sorry, what, what was the actual question? I'm just curious, like, what I'm trying to get at is I think people in, in the United States, you know, they see uh, this on the news and to the, a lot of people, they box it in as another conflict. It's like Ukraine. It's like, Oh, you know, there are, right. there are people dying. This is really bad. They can engage with it on a cerebral level, but right. it's very hard for people to engage with it on an emotional level. And yeah. I, I think it's worth spending a little bit of time, like talking about like, what does this actually look like when, you know, thousands of people were killed in a day, you know, their loved ones, their houses were burned. And on the other side, when, you know, what, what the Palestinians are going through, when their homes are being destroyed and when people are dying, innocent people are dying, what does that, what it, what does that emotion look like? What, how do they deal with it? When you interact with them, you know, what is going through their mind? How do they, how do they behave to you? Like, what is that state of mind like? If you can try and articulate it, I'm curious. Yeah, it's, it's this, this, palpable feeling and topic where every single discussion can't finish until 
it, it it essentially like melts away to what's what's happening underneath and what's happening underneath is this conflict you can have conversations about you know i have regular everyday conversations about you know work and relationships and love and life and sports but at the end of every conversation whether or whether it was the start of every conversation it always kind of melts away to to the conflict and it's this just like acute sense of trauma um that everybody is is living with and for some people it's it's at the very forefront um and for some people it's just below the surface for some people it's it's their entire life right now because they have you know a loved one who was murdered or they have you know a loved one who is still um is still you know captive in gaza or they're you know they have uh, you know, I, it's, I didn't get to go into Gaza, but it's, you know, you speak to Palestinians and it's, you know, they feel like they feel extremely unsafe and they feel like their lives are not valued and they feel like their lives are in danger any day of the week. So it's this acute sense of, of, of generational trauma that has just the scabs been ripped open, um, for Israelis and for um, Palestinians and, um, you know, Palestinians, they, they are in constant, um, fear for their safety, fear for their fear for their lives, depending on, you know, depending on where they live. Um, it's a very important point also. Um, and, um, Israelis, you know, they, they feel the same. I think Israelis, like you, you speak to Israelis and they, they say they fear for their lives also. I think, you know, just based on like raw numbers in this particular conflict, um, life is more dangerous and more violent for for Palestinians, you know, right now. Um, so I think their, you know, their their fears are a little different where, you know, in Gaza, it's just day to day trying to stay alive. Um, in Israel, it's it's trying to, you know, stay alive, but also dealing with conflict and it's parents who who don't want to send their kids to a war that they don't really understand the purpose of, and they didn't feel like they wanted in the first place. And, you know, the, the country was essentially, um, you know, in Israel was, was protesting in the streets, the biggest protest in the history of Israel um, against the Israeli government for the past year. I have a lot of photos of that from this past summer that I could share with you too, against Netanyahu, against his right-wing government, um, against, you know, the inequality, societal level inequality that he's, you know, um, that he's, uh, that, that, that he's guiding for the country. Um, and, uh, people are angry. Israelis are angry. That's, that's probably the main emotion that I feel right now. They're, they're angry at their own government, um, for essentially feeling like, you know, essentially feel like they were abandoned. Um, a lot of people feel like, you know, this right-wing government in Israel was too concerned with building um, illegal settlements and um, protecting um, these settlements that were, you know, shouldn't have been there in the first place, that they didn't have the defense um, resources or bodies in the right place on a border with Gaza, on the border with Hamas, um, to, 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 to be able to protect the people who are, who are most vulnerable. 
So Israelis are are angry at you know the Israeli government for for failing them, but they're also obviously angry at Hamas. And Hamas has been very clear about you know what their objectives are from day one. It's in their charter: destruction of Israel. Um, but obviously they're they're angry at you know they they want you know Hamas to be you know wiped off the map. They don't want innocent Palestinians to die. There are some Israelis who just see you know, people in Gaza as, as all Hamas, you know, there's extreme, I'm not going to lie. Like it, there's, ex, there's ex, extremity on both sides. There's, there's Palestinians who see any Israeli Jew who lives in Israel as an occupier and, um, you know, committing violence against them as an act of resistance, not an act of, you know, violence. And there's Israelis who see any, you know, any Gazan as, you know, having, democratically elected Hamas that they get lumped into the same, um, you know, boat as Hamas. So they're not even seen as civilians, but very few Israelis want innocent Palestinians to die. I don't think, I think everybody across the board feels like Hamas is never going to be a tenable partner for peace. Um, and I think most people realistically understand that like you can't kill an ideology and Hamas is more an ideology than a political movement. And Netanyahu's approach to how they're trying to end this conflict and create peace is, uh, doesn't make any sense and is completely backwards. And tens of thousands of innocent Palestinians are dying as a result. And hundred thousands of innocent Israelis have already died. And, hundreds of Israeli 18, 19, 20 year olds are being sent off to a war that people don't really see the purpose of. Um, and, you know, being kind of led into the abyss by the politician, the, by the Israeli politicians who allowed this situation to occur in the first place, who so much of the country was, was you know, rallying against before any of this happened. Um, so there's a lot of, a lot of anger, um, is one of the main emotions and the anger is, is, is spread very thin. Israeli society is, is divided. Um, Israelis are angry. Israelis are, are in trauma and, and Palestinians also have, it's more like, uh, Palestinians have, have felt this, this anger and this, you know, this oppression for a long time and now it's just you know rather than just being you know in certain places you know occupied and having their homes taken now it's you know their homes are being destroyed and their families are being annihilated so um they're they're i think you're 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 scared first because day to day in a place like gaza you're just trying to you're just trying to stay alive um so so yeah, um, but everybody feels something different. If you're if you're a mother whose whose son is, you know, if you're an Israeli mother whose son is is uh, is is a Israeli soldier in Gaza right now, you wake up every morning and you're scared. Um, if you're, you know, a concert goer, you know, from the Nova Festival whose best friends were killed before your eyes. Um, on October 7th, you're, you're traumatized and sad and angry. If you're, uh, you know, a, a 
father in Gaza trying to protect his, you know, family or mother in Gaza trying to protect her family, you wake up every morning and you're terrified and you're angry that, you know, Israel is, is, you know, bombing you and you're angry that Hamas, you know, essentially kicked the hornet's nest um, on October 7th. And, um, you know, if you're a Palestinian in the West Bank, you're angry that you're living within a fence and that you're neighbor's house got occupied by the IDF and that you can't, you know, you need to go past five checkpoints just to go to the doctor. And it, there's just, people are really living in a, in, in, in a, just a constant state of extreme um, emotional turmoil. And every day that emotion is whatever emotion that is, is different. Yeah. I saw on your Instagram that you were one of the people who, you know, the Israeli government has kind of collected and amalgamated a bunch of footage from the yeah. the massacre uh, that Hamas perpetuated on, on Israel on October 7th. And you were able to, to see that footage. I'm, I'm curious, like at a, a higher level or more of a, you know, descriptive level, like, cause I don't, I don't understand, like, I think, despite how horrible these images are, I think people, I think pe my, per my personal opinion is that people should see what this looks like, what happens. And I'm curious if you could, because a lot of, unfortunately, like you can see some stuff on Twitter, but a lot of these images have not been made public. I'm curious if you could just describe kind of what you saw and like how this kind of experience informed the way that you view, you know, what's going on there. Yeah, I don't know if it really changed um, the way I see what's going on there because like the evidence of what had happened is pretty clear. And I had spoken with people who experienced it firsthand. So I wasn't like, I wasn't surprised to see what I see, to see what I saw, but I was at the same time just seeing it was shocking. I've never seen footage like that. Um, it was 47 minutes. I mean, and I, I, I went to a military base. I had to get in touch with the IDF spokesperson's unit. And I went to a military base and um, had to, it was, it was me and um, nine or 10 um, members of parliament from the UK. Um, hmm. And first we saw all of like the materiel that Hamas had essentially left behind in, in Israel um, after October 7th. And it was, RPGs and it was unexploded grenades and it was motorcycles and it was, it was, uh, suicide drones and all of these things that, you know, we saw them first at all of the guns, everything. Um, and then we saw the film and I had to lock up my camera. I had to lock up my phone. I had to sign a waiver saying that I wouldn't, uh, record anything, but I, I had pen and paper and I just took notes on everything that I was seeing. And it was just frantic. I took like five pages of scratch notes over the 47 minutes it was the most um, depraved thing by far that I've ever seen. I've never seen anything like that in my life. I mean, it was firsthand, um, essentially like body cam and cell phone footage, mostly from Hamas themselves, like that had been captured um, from, you know, Hamas fighters on October 7th, where they were essentially recording whether it was on a GoPro or just their cell phone or a movie camera, whatever it was, the things that they were doing, um, or it was from um, CCTV footage, which that was probably like the smallest amount. 
and then there was um, video from like Israelis cell phones also um, who, you know, were recording, you know, their friends dancing at the Nova festival. And then you see, you know, here, see and hear shots or, you know, they were in their car, they're hiding in a, in a, in a bomb shelter or a bunker. And they're, you know, like recording videos because they don't know what's going to happen. And they want some sort of like record for people to see. Um, so that's what the footage is. And it's, Basically, like the only way to describe it is like Hamas was, they went hunting people for sport. Um, there's no like nicer diplomatic way to say it. They, they were overjoyed and elated in killing civilians, um, killing, <clears throat> killing people, killing women, children, men, young, old. Um, they, it was, it was, it was like killing for sport. Um, they, I mean, like the most impactful ones that I think will like stick with me for a really long time. This is like, I, I, I pretty much broke down right after I saw this. Um, at first it was just kind of they, whoever they, I, I didn't think they realized that it would take the IDF so long to respond. And they ended up having a lot more time to kind of like take their time with like Israeli captives and, and torture and, and, and torment. I think their goal in the beginning was just, we're going to get in, we're going to kill as many people as possible and get out or just, you know, we'd be engaged in a firefight with the IDF like pretty immediately. And that didn't happen for hours and days in some places. Um, so it started out just shooting anybody on the road who they encountered, um, literally just shooting into cars. And then it was, um, you saw CCTV footage and them going into individual houses on, um, on, on the kibbutzim, the villages that they attacked. One of them that really stuck with me was on a CCTV, you saw um, two young brothers are probably like eight and 10 years old and their dad it was very early in the morning. So they were all like, you know, in their pajamas running like through the kitchen, through their like little backyard into like their bomb shelter, which is to the side. And then you see these two Hamas fighters jump over the fence and just throw a grenade into the, um, into the bomb shelter. And then you see the dad's body fall covered in blood. And then the kids come out and they're like in shock and the kids are covered in blood. The kids walk back into the kitchen and they're just sitting there and in shock. And one kid goes, is this real? Is this real? I can't believe like, and the other, his brother saying to him, yes, it's real. And his, he's like blinded. His eye was blown out and his brother was taking care of him. And then this Hamas fighter just comes in and starts rummaging through their fridge um, and just starts like chugging a bottle of Coke from the fridge and tells them to just like sit down and shut up. And the kids are frantic. And then you see on the CCTV footage, um, eventually like the kibbutz security comes and the mom, the mom comes with the security team from the kibbutz and she sees that her husband had been blown up and that her kids, her, her two sons had run away and they actually survived. Um, and, um, and then you see I mean, there's, there's so much you saw one that really stuck with me was, um, there was like a group of 
maybe like 10 um, Israeli girls, like 18, 19 years old, hiding in what looked like uh, almost like uh, like where they keep like cows. Um, it, it was just like, look kind of like a big, like tin iron building, whatever. Um, and um, they were hiding there. And then all of a sudden this Hamas, you know, terrorist comes in and they go, oh my God, who is that? Who is that? They didn't know what was going on. And they were filming, you know, themselves. And, and then you see, um, you know, they're getting yelled at. And then a few minutes later, you see footage of, from a Hamas cell phone or camera of in this exact same room, um, basically all of these women are covered in blood, but half of them are lying dead on the ground who had clearly just been sexually assaulted because they had blood coming from between their legs um, and um, clearly victims of, of rape. And the Hamas fighters are kind of just like going around like one guy's going around with a camera and just like interviewing all of his friends. And you see these, these four or five Israeli girls just covered in blood. Their friends are lying dead on the floor. They, who, who I, you have to assume they had just seen get raped in front of their eyes and who knows what happened to these other, these other women. Um, and you see them going around and it reminded me like what I wrote down, it reminded me of like a locker room after like, uh, like after a sports game, these guys are just kind of like sitting there they looked, they were young guys. They look exhausted. They had the Hamas headbands, they had guns and they were just kind of like sitting there smoking cigarettes, um, talking to their commanders um, and just kind of like saying like, you know, we're here, you know, Alhamdulillah. And, you know, we're, we're here to, you know, set, set Gaza free and, and um kill israelis and etc that really stuck with me another one was um this story came out recently they there were two decapitations in this video one was one that was like pretty popular going around um telegram where it was like a thai um worker that they basically like decapitated him with a with a shovel or some sort of garden tool and then another one, which I think is probably what was in the news recently, where they were selling a decapitated IDF soldier's head for like 10,000 bucks. They're trying to sell it in Gaza. That I was actually surprised that they actually showed it. There were, they have more footage that they didn't show because they think it would be too traumatizing, but like that the IDF didn't show because they think it'd be too traumatizing of sexual assault. But this one, some... Hamas terrorists like took out a knife that was like the size of like a big steak knife and just chopped off this dead IDF soldier's head and then called his commander or called his commander before and you hear his commander say bring it back to Gaza we're gonna let like we're gonna let the kids kick it around like a soccer ball in the street um and then the last one that really stuck with me, I would say, like, I'm sure more, I could recount everything. But another one that really stuck with me was, I think it was on an army base, I wasn't sure exactly where it was, it wasn't clear. But um, <clears throat> there were three or four young girls, they might have been like young IDF soldiers who were hiding under a table in a room that had been like already shot up and destroyed. And they were like in shock. And um, 
two um, Hamas terrorists walk in and say, "Hey, I found I found a few more. I found a few more. Bring your uh, bring your camera and like bring your phone. Like record this." And they shot a few of them under the table, and either they weren't killed immediately or the guy didn't get a good shot. So the other guy said to him, like, hold on, I didn't get a good shot. Pull them out. Let's do that again. And this happened at a few different points where they were like, they found somebody hiding and they were like, they called their friend over to say, hey, record this. Um, so they like pulled out these three or four, like 18, 19 year old girls. And the guy like, it was like a director, the guy who was holding the, the phone, the camera was like, pull them out, like put the light on them and like shoot them in the back of the head. And you saw this, like you saw them shoot these kids in the back of the head and then record it and celebrate it and like leave a message for their friends and parents. Um, like, Hey mom, Hey dad, look, look what I did. Um, none of this, again, none of this is surprising because Hamas has been very clear about how they feel about Israelis and what their intentions were. And they were live streaming this themselves for the world to see. Um, so none of this was surprising that they did this, but at the same point, it was, it, it was still extremely shocking as a human being to see this happen to other, for human beings to so easily do this to other human beings is it's shocking. It's terrifying. And, and on a personal level, as you know, being a Jewish person who has a lot of friends and some family in Israel, these are people that, uh, you know, who I'm seeing being executed. These are literally friends of friends. These are people who my friends know, and it's too hard for Israelis to see it. And to your point earlier, I, I do think that this should be shared as, as hard as it is. Um, I asked like the spokesperson's unit, why don't you share this? Um, because, you know, people need to see what happened and people are even questioning even people like after I, I shared, like I haven't really shared what I saw, but when people are denying what happened, <clears throat> I feel like I have to speak up and say, you mm -hmm. like, it's undeniable. I've seen it with my own eyes. If you trust me as a person, if you trust me as a journalist, if you trust me as a photographer, trust me when I say I saw these things happen with my own eyes. Um, so it's been very frustrating to see a lot of people try to deny that this happened and they wouldn't be able to deny it if, if Israel decided yeah. to release this footage. And when I said that to the spokesperson's unit, they basically just said it's too traumatizing for Israelis. And I, I spoke about this because this was kind of like pretty early on in my time there. I spoke to Israelis and, and across the board, every single one of them said they, they would never, ever watch it. They'd never be able to see it. So the IDF is actually like protecting the, the, the minds of, of Israelis by not sharing this, although that I think it would be extremely helpful for their case, for their cause, for their, you know, I, I hate to say it like this, but for their PR as it relates to this war, because so many people don't believe that these things actually happen to Israelis um, and just see Israelis as an Israel as the sole aggressors. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't think that that's accurate and I don't think that that's fair. And it kind of like, to your point, it kind of ladders back to a conversation that we had at ICP um, earlier um, this year in the fall about whether or not um, it's actually about, <clears throat> it, it comes back to work that Teju Cole um, and Susan Sontag, I can share more of their work with you later, 
you know, as a result, as, as it relates to this, about the suffering of others, um, about how comfortable um, people in the West in America are, are seeing our, our, how comfortable we are and how, how commonplace it is to see suffering and violence perpetrated against people in different parts of the world, especially those, you know, who, who are coming from, you know, the developing world, especially people with, with brown and black skin. We're used to seeing suffering for them, but we're not used to seeing white Westerners have violence perpetrated against them or, or suffering on the same level. And we have to ask ourselves why we're comfortable seeing these images and these videos of, of violence and, 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 uh, and struggle and trauma with these other populations, but not within our own, why it's too disturbing for our own, but we're okay with it, with others. And <clears throat> that conversation kind of got elevated to the conversation of school shootings in the States where it's obviously like an epidemic that we have here. And one thing that we never do is share photos of school shootings. No American in the public has ever seen the photos of an aftermath of a school shooting. We've never seen a photo of a dead, of a dead kid after a school shooting. We've never seen even what the classrooms look like because it would be too disturbing for Americans. So the media just doesn't show it. But I do think that we should show it. And as terrible as it seems, as traumatizing as it would be for the people who went through it and the communities who lived it, I think it would really, on a more macro level, prevent it from happening on the level that it happens. Uh, again, um, images are way more powerful than descriptions and, and just words. And I think if Americans saw the raw images of school shootings, I think it would be impossible to not act. And we've sat on our fucking hands when it comes to, you know, gun violence and access to guns and school shootings in the States. And I think if more Americans saw and experienced what that actually looks like, then it'd be impossible not to take more extreme measures to combat it. And I think that, and, and a lot of people disagree with me, to be honest, but um, as like a social justice activist and photographer, I do think that we should just bite the bullet and share these images. And I think as it relates to this particular conflict, I think these images and, and photos need to be shared. I mean, there's a risk that they're used as a, there's a risk that they're that they're used as a means to 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 make people angry and for people to go out and cause more violence and aggression towards the others. But Israelis all know what happened because it happened to them specifically. So I don't think that that's at, gr at great of a risk. I don't think those videos are going to cause Israelis to go out and want to become more violent and want to go perpetrate more acts of violence against Palestinians. Not that they need any help to do that right now. Um, but I think it would it would change the narrative throughout the rest of the world, um, where you know Israel and Israelis are not seen as having been victims um, in this at all. And I don't really think like what happened on October seventh is actually a part of the narrative anymore. Um, and you know uh, by October 9th or tenth, it wasn't really even part of the narrative anymore. Um, and I think it's important to understand that 
you know, the suffering that, you know, Israelis and, and Jews and, and Israel went through. And to really understand that when you're saying ceasefire now, and I want a ceasefire, but when you're saying ceasefire now, and it's just directed at, at Israel, you also have to understand that the people who are on the other side of this ceasefire are violent uh, terrorists. And if you saw what happened on October 7th, you might try to put out a more constructive argument than just calling for a ceasefire without any actual um, ideas about how to like create an actual like lasting peace or lasting ceasefire because you have one party who has basically agreed to never have a ceasefire. Um, so yeah, well said. Um, I yeah, so I, I think that I think that would be important for for like the overall understanding of the actual dynamics of the situation. Yeah, and I'm curious. Like you know, I have a few more questions before we wrap this thing up, but you know. You, you've had this uh, experience at this, in this very contentious uh, time in our, in our recent history and, you know, in Poland and Israel, I'm curious, I mean, you showed me a picture of your grandparents when we first started out and, and you talked about how you wanted to go to Poland to kind of document, you know, the, I guess the Holocaust is no longer about to be living. We have some people that are still living that have gone through the Holocaust, but Right. In a few years, that will no, no longer be the case. Um, I'm curious, you know, having these experiences in Poland and Israel, if you could speak a little bit about, you know, what it is honestly like in your in your life to have grown up, um, you know, a descendant of people that survived the Holocaust and and kind of how that how that shapes the way that. I don't know how, how that shapes the way that you kind of. I mean, it seems like you're a, you said that you're a humanist, you care about engaging in, in these issues. I'm just yeah. curious. I mean, I, I think, first of all, like, I think, I, I think we should talk more about what people that have had these experiences, what these experiences are like. So I want to, uh, as you went to Poland to kind of document um, this while it's still alive, I'd love to hear about what it was, what it was like, or what it was like to grow up uh, with parents or grandparents that survived the Holocaust and, and kind of how it, if it all has shaped the way that you kind of engage with photography and um, what you do. Yeah, fully. Um, I mean, a hundred, a hundred percent, my entire like family life upbringing was, was rooted in, you know, our family suffered greatly, came to this country as refugees. My mom's parents too, they came, you know, because of, um, you know, pogroms and, um, essentially not being able to live as Jews in the Soviet Union and, and um, you know, uh, around the turn of the century and they wanted to be able to live freely. So they came to the States in the 20s and 30s on my mom's side and my, my parents' side, they came, my dad's side, they came um, in the 40s and 50s, but they were spread out everywhere. I mean, my dad's, um, my dad's family and my aunts and uncles' family they wound up in some wound up in New York, some wound up in Montreal, some wound up in uh, Argentina, some wound up in Brazil, some wound up in Israel, all over wherever we could go. So that like experience of of losing everything and being a refugee and having to start, you know, fresh, you know, somewhere new and and getting to that new place and, you know, being seen as a second class citizen at first, it it really has kind of like 
colored my entire experience to approach to, you know, my work, my life and, and, you know, as a result, my photography, um, my family is, is hyper-conscious. And I think my community is hyper-conscious of, um, other people's experiences who have gone through certain things. And we tend to, um, are constantly be putting, we tend to constantly put our experience into a modern context. And now that we're in a position where we're not, you know, in New York, we don't feel like we're really like the victims where we're in a position to help other communities who are, um, going through similar, you know, tribulations to be able to help wherever we can. Um, and I think that's kind of like a value an ideal that's inherent in my family and, um, in my community, at least, you know, having been through something like that, having overcome, uh, you know, just, uh, in my grandparents' generation, a scenario like that, a situation like that, um, how can we, you know, take that experience? How can we use the position that we're in now, um, to prevent that from happening to other communities, to uplift of other communities? You know, we think of ourselves as a minority community, um, although, you know, we've, we've done, you know, like the Jews have done like quite well for themselves in America. We still think of ourselves as a minority community, I think, and, um, one that can empathize and relate to, you know, other minority communities, um, quite well. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a family value. It's a community value. I think it's a Jewish value to be, um, uh, to, to, to basically like put yourselves out there to dedicate your life to, to helping others where possible who have gone through, you know, similar circumstances and, and to use whatever like privilege and whatever power you might have to create, you know, better social dynamics for the world and to, um, you know, improve outcomes for human rights, wherever, you know, wherever it's possible. When you were in, uh, Poland and Israel, you know, I'm, I'm curious, like what, emotions were coming up when you were having these experience experiences and, and also like curious if you were able to, if you felt more, um, connected to, uh, to your, to your relatives, um, you know, after experiencing these things. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, it, it Pol I'd been to Poland before, um, and I'd been to a bunch of the, um, I'd been to three or four different concentration camps. I'd been to Treblinka and Auschwitz and Majdanek and one more. Um, and I went with a big group when I was in high school and it was just about, you know, trauma and tragedy and history. And then when I was there myself this past time, I actually kind of got to like slow down and see what life actually might've been like and walk the same streets. And, and it was a much more personal experience because it wasn't about just, you know, like the broad Polish Jewish experience or the broad, you know, Jewish experience during world war two in Europe. It was about my own family's experience. Um, and it felt, um, very like, it felt very personal. Um, and it felt very, um, I've never had a connection to Poland, like the place Poland 
my grandparents are from there. They spoke Polish. They were born there. You know, the way that an Italian American in New York feels a strong sense of their Italian heritage. I feel zero of that for Poland and my grandparents are from there. I feel, I feel a very strong, um, connection to like, I, I don't identify as Polish. I identify as Jewish or Ashkenazi Jewish. So that's like where my cultural touch points are. Um, but to feel this culture that my family was in experienced in a place like Krakow was really powerful. Um, and I felt it almost felt like, uh, like I didn't really feel like a tourist there. It felt like a place I had been before. It felt like a place where it just felt familiar to me. It felt like the origins of, you could see the origins of, of, you know, New York, Eastern European, like now, you know, the Eastern European Jewish culture in New York, which is a big part of the culture in New York. You could see kind of like the origins where it came from, you know, in the food and the music and the, in the architecture. Um, and that was really interesting to see. And it felt kind of like a homecoming to a certain extent. Um, and I felt very comfortable in Krakow, whereas the last time I was in Poland, I felt very uncomfortable and very unwelcomed. Um, and then when I went to my grandfather's village, like I mentioned, it's like a three hour drive away from, from Krakow. It's just, I expected it to be, you know, and this is probably just like my own like preconceived bias about what Poland actually looks like. I expect it to be like a rundown, disheveled, you know, one horse town. And it was a modern bustling town on a beautiful river, the Vishla river. Um, it was, it was industrial. There was, it was great infrastructure. It was full of life. It, there were kids, there were, there were schools, libraries, restaurants, trees, parks, and it was modern and beautiful. And, and I don't know what I was really expecting because my whole idea of like shtetl life is like what I've seen in photos and what my grandfather, shtetl's like the old Jewish like community. And what I'd seen in, um, what I'd seen in like Fiddler on the Roof. And for some reason, it had just been like, these areas had just been frozen in time. And I don't know what I expected to see but I saw a very modern bustling town and the only relic, like I mentioned in 1939, I think there were like 6,400 Jews there, um, which was like 60% of the population. And now there's not as much as a statue or a monument or a plaque to the Jewish community who once lived in this town, who once, you know, were the leaders of this town, who once, you know, gave this town its spirit, its culture. All there was was a cemetery that I had to hop a fence to get into. It wasn't like there was no gate to get in. There was nobody visiting the cemetery. There's no, there's no, you know, local society of people who, who upkeep it. And this is the story of thousands of villages in, you know, Poland and Lithuania and Ukraine and, 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 um, you know, all over Europe and all over, you know, where, where Jewish communities once were and, in Marrakesh and Damascus and Beirut and in Baghdad and in Algiers and Alexandria and Cairo. So it's a familiar story, but I think it'd probably be very similar in all of these places. There's not much of a recognition of its Jewish history. There might be small little relics that you can find here and there, 
And that's, that's what I experienced. And being in that town actually made me quite uncomfortable because mm. it felt so distant. And I expected to go there and feel a sense of connection because it's where my grandfather spent the first, you know, 14, 15 years of his life. Um, but it was very hard to find any connection to this place where I just completely was looked at and felt like a complete outsider. Um, and um, all history of Jewishness and culture had been completely erased or destroyed, whether that was, you know, deliberate or just, you know, the, when the Germans came. Um, but it was, um, that, that was quite an, an eerie feeling. And to be honest, I'd actually like to go back and spend more time and do a little bit more discovery just to see if there's more to it that I, that I'm missing, that I missed. So, yeah, I think, I, I think I'll go back, um, eventually. And it was, it was beautiful to be honest with you. So mm. that was another part of it. Amazing, man. Um, last question for you. I, I think in, in 2024, yeah, we're recording this on, uh, January 28th, 2024. I think my feeling is that, you know, when it comes to, uh, writing, when it comes to photography and honestly, when it comes to like ideas, I think that it's hard to find like original voices. I think a lot of people, um, subscribe to kind of like templatized ideas that have been sold to them on like TV or news. And, uh, and I'm curious, like how you go about, I, I think, you know, good art, true art and, and good ideas are, are very much, you know, authentic and, and unique and are able to explore nuance that these more kind of generic ideas that most people engage with are not able to do. And I'm curious, like how you, you know, how have you been able to, as a photographer, how have you been able to, to find your voice? Um, I'd love to kind of hear about the, the process. Cause I lot, I think a lot of people, uh, are unable to find their own voice. Yeah. I think that's something <clears throat> that most photographers, like you mentioned, really, um, writers, photographers really struggle with, and I'm, uh, chameleon and a maximalist when it comes to life. And that really, uh, that really, um, is exhibited in photography. And I think it's like, I'm, I'm slowly figuring out exactly what that voice is because honestly, like to be, at least to get your start in photography, you need to carve out a very specific voice for yourself. You need to carve out a specific style, subject matter, themes, um, so that you're not just, uh, you know, horizontal surface level, um, uh, observer, but you're a real, you know, you want to be a researcher. You want to be, a, you want to be a, an author with a camera. You want to be, a, a, a thinker, you want to go deep. Um, and I think the thing that I, I definitely think is my voice is, is this connection to people and my ability to, to, to understand people and my ability to, to help people share their own story in a, in a meaningful and humanistic way. And I think that's what my approach will be is allowing people to, to be their authentic selves and to tell their stories. And I, I tend to identify with people who 
have been through some sort of trauma or have overcome some sort of hardship. And I look for those stories because I think those, those people and those stories are the most important ones to tell because they give the people who read them and who see them the confidence and the strength to see that, you know, somebody else has, has been through, you know, something difficult. This is a story that I can identify with and it gives, it gives me strength. Um, or this is a, you know, through, through photography, through a lens, this is a, a different culture or a different um, group of people who um, I didn't know I had so much in common with, or I didn't know I was interested in. And, and it forces people to, you know, when you, when you see somebody as, as a neighbor or as somebody as familiar, you're, you're so much, so much less likely to, uh, to wrong them, to, 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 to see them as less than. Um, and I think it's, it's really important for, for people to, uh, to, in a city like New York, especially to be able to, to see their neighbors beyond just, you know, people who live in a different neighborhood um, or, you know, this group of people, you know, are the bus drivers and this group of people are the delivery workers and these group of people are the lawyers and these group of people are the doctors. But, you know, to see the humanity and to see the stories and to value the culture and that no one piece of like the fabric or not, no one piece of the tile of the mosaic of New York City is more important than the rest, that it's all part of this overall mosaic. It's all part of this overall quilt and without each of these pieces standing on their own and being celebrated and being respected and being dignified the the whole city is not as strong and your community is not as strong um so that's that that's my goal and that's kind of what led me to sundance this past week actually was <clears throat> well my sister and her husband have been going for a long time and um it's always kind of been on my radar and they told me to come this year and I wanted to find a good reason to come because I had to miss um, a couple seminars and it's, you know, it's not cheap. I had to fund this myself, but there's a, um, there's this gym in the Lower East Side around the corner from me called Con Body. It's like, uh, it's a, it's a workout uh, class, like a Barry's boot camp started by this guy named Cos Marte. He's from the Lower East Side. Um, he is um, formerly incarcerated individual, ex-convict, um, who had been in prison for about six years and um, got in really good shape while he was in prison um, on doctor's orders, basically, and started doing workout classes for other guys in prison. And when he came out, he basically said, you know, I'm coming back to Lower East Side. I'm living on my mom's couch. I destroyed this neighborhood before, which is how I end up in jail. Now I want to uplift this neighborhood. So we started doing these, these workout classes and they, they got bigger and they eventually rented a space in a basement in the Lower East Side. And then they got kicked out and, um, they, he hired only, he hires only formerly incarcerated individuals to do, to be trainers at the gym and to work at the gym. So he creates these pathways for employment. Uh, Combody creates these, these pathways for employment. And there was a film crew following them for, for basically eight years from, at, from after he got out of prison to where they are now, um, you know, this big marquee gym in the Lower East Side. Um, and I got in touch with them in person in the Lower East Side before we went out to Sundance and I connected with them at Sundance and um, 
we did a lot of photos and I heard their story and I saw the film and now it's become much more than just, you know, a personal success story and a personal, um, um, uh, a personal um, reinvigoration of, of one's life. He's really invigorated an entire community of formerly incarcerated individuals and the community of the Lower East Side writ large. So um, it's not just about keeping people healthy, but it's about, you know, combating recidivism. And it's he's done really incredible work and they're creating pathways for people who are in prison to come out and have a pathway to employment. And it's also, you know, people who come from different communities and come to this gym who have an idea of what, um, you know, a, an ex-convict or a formerly incarcerated individual looks like or how they're supposed to behave or how they're supposed to interact with them and changing their views on this and then going and sharing it. So <clears throat> that's the type of work that, that I want to be doing. That's the type of work that I'm really passionate about sharing, you know, these kinds of, of stories um, and uh, uplifting, you know, this kind of work so that people, you know, challenge their own worldviews and, and uh, start to empathize with other people that they thought they might not have as much in common with, or they thought, you know, whose, whose experience or life's, you know, life story might not be as valued or valuable or as important as their own. That's awesome, man. Uh, do you have anything coming up? Any, uh, shows or anything like that and where can people yeah, find so you we have, a, <clears throat> we have a big um exhibition at the icp museum um starting at the end of may that'll be up all summer um it's kind of up in the air um what exactly my um my final project is going to look like i have a lot of material and I think what I realized is that it's going to not just be about before it was going to be at like my own family's, you know, history, overcoming trauma. And, um, but I think it's, it's now going to be more about how I have used my family's history and trauma to also tell the stories of all these other people who have used art, um, in whatever form it's in to overcome trauma, to tell a story, to create empathy, to share with the world um, and, um, and, and just go from there. I want people to see more people and really see and understand more people. So that's, that's a goal of my project. And even before my own family's history, which is also very broad and my own community's history, which is very broad, it was going to be about how <clears throat> diaspora communities in New York contribute to the overall cultural fabric of New York City. And each diaspora's commu diaspora community's um, relationship with their homeland and how they express their culture from their homeland through a New York context. Um, and I think I'm actually, this project is come, kind of coming full circle back to that because rather than focus on these things as a community level, I'm going to focus it more on um, on these people and I focus more on culture on an individual level, how do individuals express their own specific culture rather than on a community level. And um, I was going to do it with the Jewish community and the Puerto Rican community in New York. Those are two very like prominent communities here. Um, I spend a lot of time in Puerto Rico and my grandparents retired there. I have a lot of friends there. My family has a place there. It's a place very close to my heart um, that doesn't get the attention it deserves and gets abused by the U S government. So I wanted to kind of like elevate that, you know, story as well um, and elevate awareness about Puerto Rico as well. Um, 
So I think it'll come back to that as well. So I was in Puerto Rico shooting in December. So I think some of that will probably be part of the work too. And um, the New York community also will, will be a, a part of this body of work. But, you know, it'll be up on the wall at ICP in May, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a body of work that I think is going to be, you know, my general life's work. So it'll be ongoing. Awesome, man. I, I look forward to uh, seeing it. Thanks, Jack. Yeah, I'll keep you posted on, on, on uh, dates and openings and everything. Cool, man. Well, this uh, two, two hours and 19 minutes has gone by pretty fast. I, wow, yeah, I appreciate the time, dude. It's been, it's been yeah, great. And uh, hopefully I'll see you around Brooklyn. Yeah, for sure, man. If you, if you ever want to grab a beer, just let me know. I'm around. I look forward to it, man. Awesome. All right. Cool. Thanks. Have, a, have a great rest of your weekend. Yeah, you too, man. All right. Take it easy. Bye.